This is the Horse Radio Network. This is Episode 6 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of Horse Radio Network. Today, we have Sean McCarthy, trainer of world-class racehorses, and we have Sandy Collier, champion trainer of horses and people, too. They are here to give us their views on horsemanship today. Thank you for supporting our sponsors to make this show possible. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to Horsemanship Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 15th and the 30th of the month. I have my producer, Glenn the Geek, here with me today to tell us more details about the network. Hi, Glenn. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm getting ready for Christmas. Are you excited? Yes, I'm excited. I'm getting in the Christmas spirit now. We've done a couple of shows now on holiday gifts and things, and that's what gets me in the spirit. And you just spent time in a very warm spot, which is not true of the rest of the country here in the United States, but uh, you were down in Brazil. How did that trip go? Oh, that was exotic. It was great. It was very hot, though. I, you know, I know that they're born to have Christmas in the heat because it's their summer down there, but I don't know how they get in the mood. It's just <laughs> wilting at Christmas time. And uh, uh, we had a great trip, though. I, I'm very excited to share some of the some of the highlights. Uh, on I, I saw trip. lots of pictures on your Facebook page, so that Thanks was cool. Yeah. You're right, and it is neat seeing uh, all the tropical settings because it's very tropical. Oh, my gosh. We were about two hours outside of Sao Paulo uh, and uh, out in the country, and you could hear toucans, you know, whatever their sound. I'm not even going to pretend I know how to make a toucan sound. <laughs> and and uh, you, you hear these, they have these special kinds of little foxes, and they have capybaras, which is the largest rodent on Earth. That's an interesting-looking thing. It's about the size of a pig. Uh. Oh, my goodness. And they they have uh, just, it's very lush and beautiful, tropical, um, you know, the the plants that we buy at our nurseries, you yeah, know, for, they, they're for, just growing everywhere. For $100 a pop. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Orchids growing out of the trees. You go, oh, that's how they grow. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful there. Now, did uh, you were down there with Monty, right? Yes, we went down there. Unfortunately, we went down there right before Thanksgiving, so we missed our Thanksgiving. So uh, we're gonna have to make up for it at Christmas with turkey. But we um, we went there on the twenty sixth. Dad flew in from England. We met in uh, Washington D.C. and then flew down to Sao Paulo together, and uh, just hit the ground running. We did some amazingly varied and wild things. Uh, besides wild horses, <laughs> there was. Uh, a trip to the police academy, which um, he is affecting. Uh, he'll have to talk to you about how the cadets all are reading Man Who Listens and Horse Sense for People uh, as a part of their training. And I, I know it sounds odd to say that the police are trying to learn not to be violent, but they they actually are learning to be... Um, well, we, we said it this way, that people are do bad things, but people aren't bad. And they're going to be responsible, they, meaning all the police that will be responsible for Sao Paulo, uh, that'll be about 100,000 police officers. Wow. Uh, yeah. Looking after about 20 million people when the World Cup comes and uh, then oh, the Olympics. Yeah. So they're training up for that, and they um, they really are trying to put their best face forward for the world. And uh, for that, that means that they want to have uh, controlled chaos, but they also want to be known as uh, a police force that is uh, welcoming to the world. So um, so they literally have adopted dad's concepts to train at the police academy. The cavalry and everything. Wow. Yeah. Yep, I know. There's a lot of different angles we have here. And then we also met with... Um, a family that uh, is, I think it's fourth generation now uh, in Brazil, and they own uh, 
pretty much the world in paper production. Uh, they grow the eucalyptus trees in Brazil, and it's it's just amazing the dynasty that they have. But they met with us because they want to hold their family together and they um, want to transition to a, a better world. And uh, we we just were able to spend time with them talking about uh, the ways to trust and communicate, and those are our concepts. So that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, gosh, we did... Um, some fun appearances at some farms and uh, got to see they have such great breeds down there Mongolaga Machador. I was, yeah, was going to ask you about the yeah. breeds what do you see yeah Paulistas Mongolaga Paulistas uh, it's a different it doesn't gate uh, the Mongolaga Marchadors gate they have the Criollos which are very much like our um uh, quarter horses, and they have uh, they, they have breeds that they they have their own Brazilian warm blood, which of course they there's European descent there. But they they have uh, it's a huge country. They have so many different. Oh, there's one Pantanal breed that has has adapted to live in the water. Now anybody who knows horses knows that their feet are not happy to be. Right, soaked right. all day long. No, these are have uh, adapted so that they. They're thrush-proof horses. Thrush-proof horses. Can you believe that? <laughs> Need <laughs> and some the of those here in Florida. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, that's right. You must have bit warm weather for your Christmases, though, too. Oh uh, yeah, we've actually been in a. We're the only part of the country, only state, I think, that's been in a heat wave. We've uh, been eighty-five huh. to ninety every day. Oh, my gosh. And we've actually been in shorts, and, you know, it, it's been unusually warm. It's not usually that warm here, but we I know that we're hated by most of the country I was going right to say, now. probably people <laughs> yes. don't want to hear this. <laughs> no. Now, tell, so these breeds, are they all in the 15 to 16 hand range? Are they smaller? In, oh, for some reason, does. I'm just picturing smaller horses. They did. They do. They tend to be a smaller horse down there, the, uh, the marchadors and the... Um, yeah, most of them even. Sort of, even the sort of Mustang are, size, average Mustang size. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. they come from the barb. That's a good point. The the Spanish horses that came over here with the, the uh, conquistadors and all that history we have here is the barb, you know, the northern Africa and uh, Spanish breed. And that barb blood is seen down there as well. And it's manifest into the Criolla, which got larger, but the the Mongolagas are, are uh, a petite breed too, very much like our Mustang. You're right. They're very, they're very, um, uh, they're not sensitive horses, though. They're just really sweet, sweet, sweet horses. Uh, they do have, they love their Arabians down there, and they have some amazing Arabian breeds down there. But uh, but I would say the, the, I think the biggest breed is Mangalaga Marchador, and they're just the sweetest, kindest horses. And I, and I hate to say it, but I think it, it's because their methods of training have been so harsh for so long that the really sensitive ones just don't make it. And I know that sounds harsh, but, you know, this is a survival of the fittest when you put them through such traditional uh, tough breaking. But you know what? That is changing. They're recognizing it. And I have to uh, say that I give them credit for being more open-minded than any other culture that we've been able to um, be privileged enough to work with. They don't want to be rough with their horses, and they recognize that it isn't very effective. So I well, put that's that good news. I mean, that's, that, Yeah, it is yeah, good news, ultimately. Good news. <laughs> yeah, I know there's, yeah. a large, uh, there's large breeding operations for Lusitanos down there, too. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, any of the Spanish breeds, I guess, you know? Uh, yep. The, well, that's very, very interesting. And I know in the next episode, we're going to talk to your dad and find out. We're kind of going to do a recap of 2013. So I'm sure he's going to be talking about his Brazilian trip then, too. Oh, yeah. I'm going to insist because he's got some great, yeah. Great I mean, news. what neat. I, I, you know, I never, we always think about your dad working with horses. I don't think about him also translating that to humans for whatever purpose, whether it's police. Oh, you or, know, and he, he always says that the horses don't have the problems. Well, that is true. <laughs> I mean, that is true. with the people. <laughs> They're fine. It's, it's everybody else that we got to work on. <laughs> no, it's not true. You know, they're calling us down there. It's not like uh, we're in imposition. They, they are requesting. He goes where he is asked for. So we're happy to do that. Well, very good. Tell us, uh, we, we have a couple of great guests coming up, as you said, on today's show. And we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, good horsemanship with these guests. I'm excited about that. And then later on, we have a tip 
for you and training tips. So we have all of that coming up on today's show. Don't forget, you can listen to us. The easiest way to do that is on your iPhone or your Android phone. Just go into your app store on either one and search for Horse Radio Network. All of the shows on the Horse Radio Network can be found there, including Horsemanship Radio. It just is the easiest way to listen to our shows. Or you can go to horseradionetwork.com or horsemanshipradio.com. Either one, you can listen online as well. Good. That's great. And we're going to hear more uh, from Sean McCarthy after this message from Index Fund Advisors, matching people with portfolios. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, He's a Sugar Bear. (laughs) You know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com. That's IFA as an Index Fund Advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. Thoroughbred trainer Sean McCarthy has spent most of his life in the saddle aboard countless great horses, including Jewel Princess, Opening Verse, Strode's Creek. And in 1981, Sean was hand-selected for his talent in horsemanship by internationally renowned trainer Monty Roberts, the man who listens to horses, to work with them starting young horses through nonviolent methods and join up. So for nearly a decade, Sean worked with Monty at Flagazette Farms, and they would travel the world training horses, uh, and that included the Windsor Castle ride with the Queen, the very first time that Monty demonstrated join up outside of his uh, walled uh, round pin. And after that, Sean uh, galloped and trained for Hall of Fame trainer Charles Whittingham, and since 1990, Sean has trained on his own and is respected as a trainer nationally and a racing analyst for HRTV as well. Welcome, Sean McCarthy. Well, nice to talk to you, Debbie. It's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you, too. Thank you so much for lending your time today. I think you're, you've got a horse in, the, in a race today, don't you? I do. There's an eight-race car today in Hollywood Park, and we are in the eighth race. So right after this interview, we'll quickly head over to Inglewood, California. Good for you. Thank you so much for, for cutting out some time for us today. We'll be quick here because I know that you can impart a lot of knowledge really fast. That's what racing trainers do, right? <laughs> That's what we try to do. Hopefully we convey that to the horses themselves. Make yeah, that whole exactly. program fast. Yeah, the whole thing. So, you know, a lot of our – this is Horsemanship Radio, and it's about your horsemanship. And I know that you've spent we've, – we've said it in the intro that most of your life has been in the saddle – so I want you to bring a little bit about horsemanship to our audience that uh, may not know what a day, a typical day in the life of an on-the-track trainer is all about. Do you work hard? Well, you do. It, it starts off. It starts off early in the morning. It's seven days a week, and we start off. Uh, you get up about in your range from four thirty, and I get to the track a little after five o'clock in the morning generally. Um, and we have a. I have a list already made up of the horses that are going to train and what we want to do with them regarding their training. I've done that usually the day or night before, so that list is set. By the time I get to the barn, the boys have already got the horses' uh, stalls clean pretty much. Um, they're organizing the tack for the first set to go to the track. And what I do is just come in and kind of go through things quickly, and then I check every horse. So I run my hands on every horse's legs in the barn uh, before they go to the racetrack. We uh, 
are aware of temperatures and their eating habits that, that night, how they ate dinner, what their temperature is, and an ideal temperature is anywhere from 99 to about 101 or a little under 101 would be ideal. So we look at all those. We also keep a close eye on how much water they drink and, and all those little things, Debbie, that, 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 that add up to big, to, to add up to big things. So mm-hmm. you really have to pay attention to the small details. And once we, Get everything established early on. Our first set usually goes to the track at about 5.30 in the morning. And each horse is probably out there, oh, I would say for roughly 20 minutes. Uh, the longer, the better, really. The more time we're able to take with them on the racetrack, the more I like it. And sometimes they come off the track and take them for a long walk home. Sometimes they go for a long walk before they go to the track because I've always been to say the more I can have Mazda styles, uh, the more healthy it is for them. And... You're talking about a thousand-pound animal who's, you know, on an ace track and in the stall quite a bit during the day, and they're not meant to be like that. They're meant to be out moving, and we try to do that as much as we can. So we progress through the morning, and, and we're usually done training, uh, going to the track, that is, by about 9, 9.30 in the morning. The track closes for training at 10 o'clock in the morning. It opens at 4.45. So we have plenty of time to get things done, and then, you know, then a lot of work really starts actually with rehabilitation things and icing horses and doing horses up in poultices and, and rubbing on legs and shoeing, do a lot of shoeing at that time and and just kind of uh, going over how the horses uh, train that morning and then again reset the uh, set list for the following day. So by the time we're done uh, and the barn begins to quiet down, it's about 10.30. We feed a, a light grain breakfast at 10 o'clock in the morning. They get there every morning at 10 o'clock, and by the time those feed cuts go in, the guys wake up to shed bill and things wind down about 10.30 in the morning. And, uh, wow. and, the, and the day continues on. So now you got kind of, it's kind of double sessions, if you were. Um, if you're not racing, you know, you go home and eat, eat a little lunch and you kind of get, and get on the phone and talk to clients and prospective clients and, and jocks jockey agents and things like that, and uh, mm-hmm. I usually try to get a nap in there at some point in time, and and um, and then about till 2.30 in the afternoon, we, we're back at the track, and then we have afternoon chores, and, and that consists of cleaning, you know, picking out the stalls, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, setting the feed for the evening feed, uh, walking, I get a lot of my horses out and walk them in the afternoon, try to walk mm-hmm. them for 15 or 20 minutes mm-hmm. at a time. Uh, you're checking temperatures again, and and just a typical afternoon chores, watering off and setting the feed. And we go ahead and we put the feed tub. The night feed goes in at four o'clock in the afternoon. If it's winter time, we're going ahead and blanketing at that time, blanketing all the horses and gotcha. get everybody bedded down. And uh, things wind down usually about oh four thirty. I'd go to bed at that point. That's what I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exhausted. That's, that's, listening. that's just a day when you're not racing. If you're racing, yeah. then things get a little hectic. And uh, sometimes they do. It depends how many how many horses you're running that day and and what what type of time of day you're running. So mm-hmm. that can all vary. So we know that. I mean, I'm I'm kind of stressless listening to all that, and I know that horses um, they take on some of that stuff. What do you do? I like that you walk them back and forth, and you get some time, you know, to be a horse. What else do you do? Some of the de-stressors that you think of. Some of the other things that we do do uh, de-stress. You know, things to calm the horses. But to calm, well, that's a, that's a lot of it right there. It's just I find spending as much time with them as you can. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just hurry up, get in there, get them trained, get them done up, and let's get out of here type of thing. Um, you know that that to me that that routine to me would tend to lead to get a horse a little bit more nervous about things. I think the more time you can camp with them, if you will, and spend time with them to a point where you don't want to be in the way and bother them. There's been there's been times, and I've read on articles on trainers, famous trainers, uh, that for example take a horse out of, out of the, for example, I may have a horse I'm going to run, say, at Churchill Down, and I'll ship from California to Churchill Down in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'll take that one horse, I'll groom an exercise rider. Well, I'm there for four or five days before, the, say, the horse runs on Saturday, and I ship in there on Tuesday, and I've just got the one horse, and there's a time where you can spend too much time with him. In other words, I'm bored, so I'm hanging around there all day fooling around with the horse. The horse never gets a chance to rest or relax. Yeah. So you don't want to go overboard is my point. I know guys that have, thought, have done that and thought they cost their horse because they just kind of got them too, they never let them just relax and settle down. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but, but 
but I would, in a nutshell, you just pay attention to everything at the, at the, at the time, in those morning hours, in those early morning hours when you're around the barn. You, know, you just make sure you pay attention to them and give them all the attention you possibly can. And that, that has a lot to do with, I think, them getting to know you, getting to know the routine, and being yeah. more confident in their surroundings. And therefore, they're going to relax more. Mm-hmm. Good. So you think they benefit by a routine? Because I do, I do, and, and, and but but sometimes you want to change that routine up. I mean, you may start training in a specific time, uh, but what you do at that time during that period of time when you do train, it's it. I try to do it, try to do different things, whether it's a different distance I'm galloping the horse, uh, uh, yeah. or or things like that. Uh, go a different way to the track, come a different way home from the track. They're like you and I. I mean, they're no different than a human. They can get pretty bored with the routine. And, and, and when you get bored with the routine, you know, you kind of lose interest in what you're doing. So you need to try to change things up every now and then. Yeah, good good advice. So I know that I, I couldn't uh, not ask you this question because you go so far back with Dad, Monty, um, mm-hmm. and back before Really, I mean, what was it, 81 that you, you met? Yeah, uh, I, can't, I went to work for, for your dad in 81 right out of high school. Yeah, Right out of high school, that's great. And so you you knew him before the Queen invited him over to England and, and mm. really started that whole movement on uh, what people now call natural horsemanship, which we didn't know what that was. Back then it was called good horsemanship. But um, <laughs> so, but, but you knew it when, before people really accepted the fact that there was, uh, there was some validity to join up in the language of the horse itself, gestural language like signing for the deaf. Um, what, was it something that you kind of kept in your back pocket too, like Dad did, or was it something that you weren't asked about? And you were right out of high school, I know. But how did you see it change over the twenty years or so? Well, at that time, um, your father, as you all know, was, was pretty in depth in the in, in, in the thoroughbred industry. Um, you know, he was. They were buying and raising horses and yearlings and raising quite a few yearlings and buying quite a few yearlings and. Uh, selling them as two-year-olds in training, and that was his primary business at the time. And we were we were probably starting about uh, 140, 150 yearlings a year. And um, when I first came to the farm, your father was in Kentucky at the at the September sales in Keenan. Mm-hmm. So I think I got there on September third, nineteen eighty-one. I, I I went down and applied and tried for that job my senior year high school drift education, and. Um, um, and I got the call from Crawford Hall, who was the farm manager at the time in August, would be here September 3rd. So I got there, and your father was away. And we just had the yearlings up in the round pen, just the, the homebreds that were already on the farm, starting those and surf singling and things like that. And so when we never got on anything until Monty got home. And then we started getting on the horses when he got home. And the routine was very basic compared to what it is today. And he always said doing those demonstrations, those were in fact demonstrations. It wasn't mm-hmm. a situation where you got on a horse in 30 minutes and rode it, you know, saddled it, brought it up and rode it in 30 minutes. So we said a lot, we had a lot of foundation work uh, before we got on the horses and then and continued on. Now, now going into 81, I think, going into 82 at some point, he started figuring out a marketing technique where, hey, it would be a good idea to get these people from the racetrack, bring them up here to the farm, you know, and 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 do a breaking demonstration for them and show them, you know, the the, the technique that you see today, which mm-hmm. was one of the early stages as far as what you see today. I mean, he's evolved it so much since then and gone into different branches and, and still continues that today. But he would, if we would get two or three buffaloes of people up and have a barbecue for them and and start a horse for them using the uh, um, uh, the, the technique that you see today and, and the join up and we called it advance and retreat. Then mm-hmm. we didn't have the join up term at that time, right. and people were very very impressed with it. And so, but but then, by the same token, some people thought yeah, it's a hoax. You know, it's just, that that can't work that way. You know, and, yeah, and right. they would they would continue to see it. And, and and would become believers in it, so we would do that. And word got out, and and through through the breaking season that went on from there through the years, you'd get periodically people coming up wanting to see Molly do that, and he would, and 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 then 
that continued on and, fa- and fast forward to 1988, the winter of December of 1988, when Sir John uh, Sir John Miller, who was the Queen Equerry at the time, and a friend of his, right. John Bowles, who lived in the f- valley there, came to the farm to see a yearling started, and uh, primarily for for Sir, Sir John Miller, um, he was interested in it, and John Bowles bonded the farm, and so. We did a yearling then. We had a couple left over who had been sick earlier in the fall, and so they didn't get started till late. So we still had a few left to start. So Bonnie said, pick one out, and I got one and brought it in, and we did the demonstration, and it went super, and we got done. And, and uh, your father, I said to your dad, I said, hey, would that be a kick if we got invited to England? I was just a kid, you know. I hadn't <laughs> been anywhere yet. And, and uh, he just kind of shrugged off and walked down the shed. Well, you know, I think we're going to bath and have lunch with the boys or something. Well, fast forward to late February of 89. We're down at Hollywood Park for the two-year-old training sale. I'm down the shed row there, and he yells at me, Hey, Sean, come down here. i got to show you something. So I run down to the office, and there is his letter from, from Sir John Miller uh, regarding requesting uh, Her Majesty for us to go to England and do demonstrations at Windsor Castle and then set up an itinerary for us to travel all over England. And um, that was the start of it right there. So we departed for uh, for England in April of 89, arrived at Windsor Castle. And we did, we started uh, 16 horses, if I'm not mistaken, there in the five days we were there. Uh, quite a few different breeds, ponies and, 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 and fat horses and thoroughbreds and and uh, we kept one thoroughbred filly. I think she was three at the time. It was owned by the Queen Mother, and we rode her every day for the five days so that you could see the finishing product. And so on the fifth day, which was a Friday, I rode that filly outside the Mews and up to the front of Windsor Castle, and the Queen had an engagement that afternoon. And I rode right up to her uh, with a lead horse foot in front of me and, and Sir John walking behind me and your mother and your father and your brother were all standing off to the side. Um, and I remember riding up that front lawn thinking, I gotta, I've got to take the prep, you know, chill my nerves, if you will, you know. And yeah. I was trying to get, uh, you think of something else, and all I said to myself, was, boy, I'd hate to be the poor guy to have to mow this lawn. <laughs> you know, I was walking up the lawn, and, <laughs> and there's the queen standing there right in front of me, and I'm riding right to her. And, um, but at that oh. said, she was with us every day prior to that. When we were when we were working with the horses earlier, and but how old how had, old are you right? How old are you at this point, John? I think at that time I was twenty four, twenty five, like wow. twenty five. I think 24, 20, 25 years old. I think I was. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and um, it was amazing, and it was really fun. And 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 then she had an itinerary for us to go all over England, and we went from Plymouth, which is in the bottom of England, all the way to Glen Eagle, Scotland. I think we started thirty six horses that had never been ridden or saddled, and rode every one of them. And you wrote every one of them. Of that, you know? Yeah, and you wrote so, every one of them. Yeah, very yeah. good. And, and that, so that was that was exciting. And then we got we got called back, uh, invited back uh, that fall from Horse and Hound Magazine, sponsored us to go back later that's that fall. Cool. And that was kind of the that's when Monty really, really took off and um, and uh, changed gears and went in that direction with the demonstrations you see today all around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, his thoroughbred industry uh, or his business had dropped completely off back home, um, and it left him pretty freed up to do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I recall. I don't know if you remember that, but the uh, the business, he was rejected by the industry pretty much at that point for doing, I don't know, what would they call it, voodoo horsemanship or something? Well, I think he was changing. The industry at the, at the time was changing. Um, it was it was consolidating. The, 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 the sales business was becoming a time I, I, that you, when you wanted to go buy yearlings to resell them, you really had to, they were starting to put up six figures to do those things. No. And, and the economics really weren't, weren't, at that time, weren't working that way. And he was really successful at what he was doing with the breaking demonstration, with the, the demonstration. And outside of the racing world, he was achieving, uh, getting a lot of recognition and achieving a lot. And so I, he continued down that path, and it was productive, very productive. And, and a lot of, um, I know for a fact that Taylor Made Farm in Lexington, Kentucky, which is one of the premier thoroughbred operations in the world, use a lot of his techniques today. The basics that he, that he, that he had are used for his joint up 
because we did demonstrations there at TaylorMade yeah, early with on. with Joe Taylor, they, with the, that's yeah, right, the yeah, father. That's mm-hmm. right, that's right. And they really, really accepted it and uh, passed it on to their employees, emphasizing to use those techniques as a foundation, and it really took off in the industry from that point. Now everybody has their own, you know, their own, they put their own spin on it and, and, and modify it according to themselves and uh, mm-hmm. certain things that but, they do, but um, that your father but you were had there. a lot you, to do. You knew that it could work right then. Yeah, when oh, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah uh-huh. certainly. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, it wasn't certainly a situation. It's not a, it's not a technique that, hey, hurry up, let's get this done type of technique. Um, it is a, it's, it's really based on building a sound relationship with the horse uh, themselves and, you know, obviously them getting to trust you. And then when they do that, things become a lot more smoother and a lot quicker. And I say that in that I was always told, you know, if you want to go fast, go slow. Go slow to go fast. Yeah. Well, a lot of people would be uh, envious of your position to be so young without all the filters on, right? All the preconceived notions about traditionalism and going straight into that um, that moment in history, really, where a lot of things changed for the training of a vast number of horses at that point. I'm really, really pleased that um, you got to relate that story to a lot of us who weren't there at the beginning and, and weren't able to see that. Um, do you have any funny stories back then? I think you traveled in the Queen's car, am I right? It was the Queen's you know, car? She, she, no? she, let it, she, she loaned us a car. I know yeah. she loaned us a car, and we had that car the whole time. Um, you know, there's some funny stories that I don't know if they're good for radio. Oh, I don't know if you can share, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, some funny stories at, at dinners and things like that. Um, it was, uh, you know, you were going every, it was, you know, you were, it was like your rodeo or an or show, and you were in a different town every couple of nights, so you were really on the go all the time. And with the longest period of time we stayed in one place was with Sir John Miller um, and that, in Oxford. And that was a lot of fun. He was a lifelong bachelor. He had a big mare. He lived in, and he had um, some health help there, Mr. and Mrs. Horseman. And they were they were great people. And I mean, stereotypical English house yeah. help. Uh, you know, <laughs> always dressed well and you know, well mannered. And and you wouldn't know they were there unless you were looking for them. And but uh, 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 Mr. Horseman, he would come in the room in the morning when I was laying there and get up and. He, and those rooms have about 17 windows and I'm in the shade on every one of them. He'd just wheel around there and just whip every shade up, like boom, 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 set like an alarm clock going off. And <laughs> I do remember one story. Your father and I and Sir John were sitting in the parlor and we'd just come home and and, uh, and he and sat down and, and Sir John asked if anybody would like something to drink and he also said, sure, we'll have this or that, the other thing. And, he, and so he uh, told Mr. Orson, go ahead and see if he can, you know, get what we need here. So he disappeared for about 20 minutes. So John's looking over his paper, and he looks at me, and I'm the kid in the room. I'm the youngest guy around there by 25, 30 years or whatever. <laughs> 20 years, 25 years. Anyway, and he says, well, if you go find the source and see what's going on, I'm looking all over the place. Well, when I can't find him anywhere, I duck behind this parlor, and there he is with the testing what we're supposed to be drinking to see if it's the right oh. stuff. So, so, <laughs> He speaks out and I'll be right there. I'll be right there. He says so. Uh, that was a, that was an innocent, funny story and, and things that like that. Innocent. That's good. That's so yeah, it was good. Just little things, but you know, you met a lot of neat people, a lot of characters. Um, got to meet a lot of interesting people. Um, so it was, it was, it was, you know, really exciting. And the older I get, you know, the more you appreciate those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were young. You were young. It's amazing, really. So I. Uh, Turning, turning to racing for one last question here. I, I've got to ask you. I, I, you're you're young, really, in the industry. I think the demographic for, for fans anyway, is getting older uh, in the mm-hmm. racing industry. And and I'd love to, your perspective is perfect to ask the question of what would attract young people to racing again. Well, I mean, what's what's working for it and what's not? Well, I think you know they're trying to market, and I think they're trying to figure out what to market. Are they marketing gaming? Or are they marketing the sport? Um, you know, well, from and, from the horse and, side, what what can they do for horses that would maybe bring people back to racing? I think that if they sped the program up, not necessarily. You know, we have race 
we, during a day at the at the racetrack, you'll have anywhere from eight to ten races a day. That's about six hours of being at the track with about thirty minutes in between each race. In today's youth, if mm-hmm. you will, that's just too much time. They, you know, they, they the, things are so quick now, and especially with technology today and people being on tablets and computers and instant, everything's instant, instant. So, um, in racing, I think would help quite a bit is if we, and it's very possible to do, is to speed up the time between races. Uh, if you can shave, rough right now it's like about 25 minutes between races. I think you can knock off easily another six or seven minutes make it 18, 19, 18 minutes between races. Mm-hmm. That keeps the people, young people, more focused on what's going on. you got to have them involved. Those kind of things. The horses themselves, the event itself, if you will, doesn't necessarily need any changing. In other words, distance. I, I, I prefer distance of races to be a little longer. Uh, we run what we call our sprint races, which are six furlong, three-quarter mile races. Uh, and then there's the Kentucky Derby, for example, which is a mile and a quarter. That's the classic distance here in America mm-hmm. of racing. So longer races are more entertaining and more tactful, if you will. But the average fan wouldn't really necessarily appreciate that. I think what you have to do to get people, young people more interested in it is speed up the program itself during the day. That's not going to cost anybody anything uh, to do that. And then, and then again... The, the the racing itself is, you know, is pretty standard. I mean, there's nothing really I can tell you to change as far as what we're doing in, in the in the athletic event, if you will. Um, and so that would be the main thing I would do. And then the, and then as far as marketing, I think there's no substitute. And I don't know if I'm going off track here or not, but there's no substitute for for customer service. You know, somebody walks in that racetrack and you ask them, can I do anything for you if they have that look on their face for they're lost? And when they leave asking if they had a good time and anything they could do to improve your experience. Being a, yeah, being those a good little things, Those little yeah. things like that cost nothing and go a long way. You know? Make it a lot more but, fun. Well, it's a beautiful place. I mean, yeah. Santa Anita and Hollywood, gorgeous, gorgeous facilities. And, and uh, I hope that um, they always remain, and it's a great tradition. And I think the horses are, are, are treated better than they ever have been. And um, uh, I, I love having you on and giving your perspective. I, I, I hate that races are, are demonized um, if they don't deserve it. And uh, I'd like to have you back, Sean, if I could. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your horsemanship and some tips that you may have for our, our uh, listeners. I'd love to do that. David, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Certainly. Thank you, Sean. Off to the races. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. Watch world's champions give their lessons. Join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse too. Our next guest is Sandy Collier, and she started her lifelong career with horses on the East Coast, riding and showing in three-day event horses. Uh, In 1972, she moved to California, and she began her transition to Western ranch life and cow horses. Big change. And in 1993, Sandy became the first and only woman ever to win the prestigious natural, it's called the National Reined Cow Horse Snaffle Bit Futurity. That's in Western reining. And uh, she was on a uh, mare called Miss Ray Dry. She's amazing. And she won the Opian, Open Champion Reserve on Diamond Star. And in 2002, she became an AQHA World Champion on She's a Shinette. Sandy's also won the NRCHA Stallion Stakes and Hackamore Classic and was the NRHA Futurity Reserve Limit Limit. Open champion. Man, she's won a lot of stuff. She is she is one experienced and an awesome performer. She operates her training facility in Buellton, California, which is right down the road from Monty and Pat. And she's also a AAA-rated judge now, an international clinician, and she's authored books and DVDs. Uh, Reigning Essentials is a great one. Uh, in 2011, she was in, inducted into the California Cowgirl Hall of Fame, and in 2013, she became a member of the NRCHA's Hall of Fame. Welcome, Sandy Collier. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. 
Oh, we're happy to have you. You are such a, a, a an experienced and piece of history with uh, both Monty Roberts, my dad, and um, what you've done and been able to achieve in the uh, the reigning world, the Western reigning world. And um, we're just excited to have your perspective here on Horsemanship Radio. Uh, I wanted to get started straight away with um, um, what our audience is, thinks is the core beliefs that how we partner with our horses and we get more generosity and 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 in your case you get breakthrough performance giving those um those types of training so tell us a little bit about your philosophy in that well i would have to agree with you um partnership is the most important i like to always think of my horse and myself as a team and so as a member of a team i'm always going to do whatever it takes to make sure that the other half is comfortable in shape sound happy knows his job and is physically able and willing to perform. And if for some reason my horse resists or starts to misbehave, Mm -hmm. I always look at myself first. Like, did I not explain this very well? Am I moving him along too fast? Is something sore? And I'll rule all of that out before I ever consider that he might be the the weak link. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, that's great. So if he's resisting something, you're looking in the mirror and thinking, you know, is it pain or is it just something he's bored maybe? Um, what What are some of the things that you've found in some of even the most talented horses you've, you've uh, dealt with? Well, they don't all learn the same. They're like children. So mm-hmm. if I explain something to a horse and he doesn't get it and he continues to not get it, it's my job to come up with other ways to try to show him what it is I want. That's how come I'm a little higher up on the food chain than, than he is. And so, That's right. <laughs> you know, if I exhaust all of the tools in my toolbox, um, you know, then I, I might have to look somewhere else for some help. But usually it's just that you don't explain it to them in a way that they get. So you have to kind of try different things. And then all of a sudden the light will come on and they'll get it. They want to get it. Yeah, they want to get it. So we just have to be sure we explain it right. Yeah, I like I like that comment. You have a great book that you've put together and um, I'm been reading some of the chapters in it too. And I love this one thing that you said that if they improve 1% a day, that's a hundred percent in a hundred days. Is that, is that really doable? Absolutely. It's far more doable than trying to make a, you know, horse 10% better a day because you may go forward that one day and get really lucky, but you're going to go backwards so fast. It'll make your head spin. Uh 1% a day is doable. It's sustainable and it's really rewarding. Uh, But the trick is to always be moving forward and not not do anything that makes them go backwards, huh? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Backwards that's always goes faster in the bigger percentages. Ah, <laughs> uh, like the stock market. It takes <laughs> the stock market forever to crawl up before it can take just a day or two to fall. <laughs> that's a pretty timely statement, but I was just checking the news. <laughs> yes. And I like how you you quoted other people in it too, Tommy Lasorda. That was interesting about perfect practice. Um, so you do believe in that you, you really stick to a, a routine and try to make those practices perfect? Well, it really doesn't do you any good if you're, if you're practicing continually without, you know, a perfect, if you're not doing it as best as you can, mm-hmm. all the wet saddle blankets in the world aren't going to get a horse trained if they aren't good saddle blankets. So, uh, you know, it's like anything else. If you practice a golf swing every day and you just don't do it right, you're really yeah. not moving your game forward. That's a good point. That sounds fair to the horse, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and the, uh, you, you made a comment, too, that I'd love to expand on, which is the horse only remembers the very last thing that he did before you gave him comfort or the ceasing of work. Yeah, that's a really important part of training because a horse learns from the release of pressure, not the application of it. So if, for instance, we were trying to make our horse side pass so we could open or shut a gate, if we're using our leg on him to make him move over, he doesn't move over because we're pressing him with our leg. He moves over because when he moves, we stop pressing. That's how they learn. So the release of that pressure is is the crucial part in training a horse because they remember the last thing that they did. Oh, I moved away from her leg and she quit she quit pushing me with her leg. Oh, Eureka. So yeah. that's that's why maybe I can teach a horse to do something a little more quickly than someone else because my timing is that much better. The release of that pressure and also the application of that pressure. But it's just a you know it's a matter of timing. That's excellent. So yeah, being into pressure animals, we actually have to fight their nature or we we train them for us 
who are not into pressure animals. I get it. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to switch gears real quick. I'd like to hear. I know everybody else would. We'd like to hear about how it was to be the first woman to win in a male-dominated snaffle bit fraternity. Well, male-dominated or not, it's still the absolute (laughs) thrill of a lifetime. I, I cannot even tell you it was like riding a wave that... It just it just wouldn't stop. It was the most amazing uh, feeling of my life, and I, I had never thought it was even possible. You know, even after they called out my name and I'm galloping around the arena, <laughs> going, "What am I doing? Oh my god, I won the snaffle bit fraternity!" It was pinch, so pinch. amazing, um, and and it was you know everyone was so supportive of it. There, it, it was it was just a wonderful thing. So yeah, you you made a little comment in there. So did you feel like it really wasn't a male dominant? Did you feel like just the right woman hadn't come along yet? Well, it's been male-dominated just because it's it's a very difficult discipline on, on your body, and it, mm. it's just more geared toward men and, and their physique and, and their lifestyle, and there just aren't that many women that are involved in it. Um, so that's the reason that it's been male-dominated, I believe. Um, but, yeah, the right woman just hadn't come along to win it. Good girl. I'm glad it was you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and now, and you've done, you won so many championships and, and people can read your bio. They've seen so much that you do. But um, I, I'm feeling like you're turning a corner. Some of the conversations we've had that you're starting to feel more like you want to go into the mentoring position. And that's so unusual for trainers, I have to say. Um, so, so many of them like to keep it close to the vest and, uh, you know, save their secrets for the horses and maybe their most intimate students, you know, but you're not like that. Well, thank you. I I think that's a great compliment. Um, I've always been into teaching and sharing knowledge, and I know how hard it was when when I was trying to learn because it was the way you just uh, said you had to sneak around behind the barn to see the tricks, you know, and uh, it was very hard getting started. But I think most importantly, it's not fair to the horses to not get the benefit from all of our cumulative knowledge over all these years. And so to hide things just slows down the, the progression and evolution of our sport. So, you know, when you look at videos from back in the 90s and 80s, I mean, we have come such a long way. So so because I feel that way, and, and yes, as I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm changing gears a little bit. I didn't bit. say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of, re- of reflection, and it's really important for me to to share, you know, the things that I've learned. And, and uh, so, I, you know, I've done my own training DVDs and written a book called uh, uh, Reigning Essentials. But, but now what I've gotten into, so many of the guys will never get together to write their own book or, or do DVDs. So I, um, I've been calling, I, I call the series Tips from the Masters. And yeah. I've been interviewing uh, fellow trainers, friends, mentors that have won over $500,000. Uh, what particular tip? has really changed their program or do they always teach or they wish all their non-pros knew and I've been recording those and mm. and releasing um, volumes of them and just actually today I released tips about bits which I've taken master bit makers and um, that's good have yeah. uh, you know gotten all this knowledge together about bits and bidding because so few people actually understand that too so Boy, that's true um, yeah that's kind of what I've been up to lately and I'm just I have learned so much it's been really exciting I, Oh, is that how that guy does it? That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, that makes sense. <laughs> Should have done this years so ago, really, right? <laughs> they have been very educational for me. It's just a way to archive thousands of training hours, you know, that might otherwise be lost. Yeah, that's true. Nobody was doing that. You know, I remember when uh, D- the Queen first asked Dad to write a book, and he went, are you kidding? I don't want to write a book. Uh, you know, can I do a video? <laughs> Even he was at least willing to do videos, but a lot of guys aren't willing to do and I don't you know you're you're probably right it's probably just the exercise of going through it too it's not just that they're keeping it all to themselves it's just accomplishing it so good for you to do that well you know some people just aren't good teachers mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. some trainers um, can show a horse and don't train one that well some you know some are blessed with all of it um, but just because you can train a horse doesn't mean you can teach you have to really really own it to teach it and mm-hmm. so you know, and, yeah. and going through that process of actually writing it down, you learn even more. Yeah. What What was the the funniest experience you've you've gone in this tips from the masters? What What did you um, 
Got any funny stories? Oh, we've got some great. We've got some great bloopers. You'll have to buy the volumes. To oh see no, the funny you're going <laughs> while we film this. <laughs> you're not going to give us one. Give us one. Oh well, it's funny that none of the guys even know what their websites are. Oh, that's and it's good. It's funny to hear them stumble over the www dot. <laughs> oh hell, I don't know. Ask my wife. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> that's pretty good. Okay, so now you got the people down. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears once again to tell me about your your equine athlete. You know, what do you look for in a great equine athlete suited for your sport? Um, for me, the, the most important quality is having a great mind and a good work ethic. Mm. Then of course they have to be athletes too, but it doesn't matter how athletic they are if they don't want to try or they can't learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the, they have to have the mind and work ethic and be an athlete. If they're big tryers, they've got to be able to stay sound. So, you know, they have to have the the body of an athlete, but boy, they've got to have the mind. And it just seems like it's a very rare package that, you know, you find that has them all, has all those qualities. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, you probably have to go through quite a few just to get there, I imagine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and how do you stay in shape, too? I mean, you've, oh, not, as, yeah. not as much as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you've had some challenges to. with some joints. That have to, but. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't pass a vet a vet check now <laughs> for love or money. <laughs> I used to be a lot more fit than I am now. I used to go to the gym regularly, play racquetball, weight train, spin. I did all that in the afternoons and evenings, and you know to stay fit so that I wouldn't get hurt. But I have had several shoulder and knee issues, so now it's down to yoga, resistance, and some spinning. <laughs> ah, that's okay. Maybe we should have started there. That's good stuff. Yoga, resistance, <laughs> aerobics. Maybe we should start there. Uh, do you do you uh, practice breathing at all? I'm looking at yoga and thinking, yeah, that makes sense because so much of pressure and performance does breathing affect you at all? I have to say that's probably something that I'm not really that aware of. I, I do know when you come out of the arena after going down the fence, it almost feels like you did all the running in the arena. <laughs> so you do have to be fit in a certain way, but it's probably not something that any of us practice. And you never get nervous? Oh, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was just thinking <laughs> elevated heart rate. No, no. You, you, do you feel like you do anything to keep yourself from from elevating all those physio signs? Um, you know, I, for my entire show career, I have always tried to just go in and do the best job I could do on that day, on that horse in that arena. And that takes a lot of the pressure off of me. Yeah. Um, I try not to self-inflict pressure. Yeah. It's, you know, it's hard enough when you have a good horse and you're trying to show, but if you have a horse that isn't and you're trying to ride around some landmines, it's equally difficult. So, you know, there's always going to be adrenaline and nerves, and the more money that's up, the more, you know, you feel nervous, and the more you transmit that to the horse, and your timing's different. But I, I just, if I try to be the best I can be that day, um, that's just the best I can be. That's great advice. What advice would you give to a young person starting out who really just admires what you do and would like to get into that uh, discipline and that sport? I get asked that a lot, and I guess I would have to say to first choose someone who they emulate, not just in their riding career and, and how they perform, but as a person. Because if you're going to spend a lot of time with anybody, you want to spend it with someone whose values are shared um, and and who you admire as a as a person, their their character, their integrity, their work ethic, all of that, because all of that's going to rub off along with the horse, the learning about the horse and the horse training. Mm-hmm. Um, so find someone that you emulate, leave your ego at the door, and mm-hmm. jump in with both feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel, yeah, that's that's good advice. I feel like there's a lot of people who want it faster these days. Young people want it faster and easier these days, and it is. It's hard to get somebody who works hard, but are you seeing some talent out there and some young folk? There's uh, there's always talent uh, coming up, I think, in any generation, but I think that this generation in particular that's coming up is a pretty much instant gratification generation um, with Internet and everything else. You know, they, they can't just wait one second when they click the mouse. It's got to happen now, mm-hmm. um, you know, before they get on to their next 
game or whatever they're doing on the internet. I mean, they they just are a generation of of people that have expectations of things happening a lot faster than you and I did. And it may happen that way on the internet, but it sure doesn't happen that way with it, with animals and livestock. So, mm-hmm. uh, but there's going to be good, talented kids coming up, you know, in every generation through the ranks, and they're here. <laughs> they're they're nipping at all of our heels. That's great. That's great. Is it a growing sport? Do you think the reigning and you know, I, I'm seeing some growth in different countries and different disciplines. What do you think about reigning in the U.S.? Absolutely, reining and rain towers and uh, and cutting are all all those performance sports are are growing leaps and bounds every year. It's very exciting. Great. That is that is. So, yeah. do you see your your future is going to be? You're going to stay in training and and teaching. Well, I love giving clinics and I love doing these educational DVDs, but I also love training horses and giving lessons here at the ranch. So, I'll find whatever mix works for me for my body as I'm getting older. Um, and hopefully it'll all, you know, it'll be successful and I'll be able to help a lot of people and then I'll feel good about everything. Well, that's good. I, I, I love your plan. We'll have to Thank stay you. in touch with you and, and follow your career now. It's, it's fascinating what you've done. It, you've just been a, a game changer in the industry and we love how you treat your horses. Thank you. I would love to have you back for a tip if you would give us to. You have years and years of experience, and we'd love to have you back on just to give us a little insight in something maybe that people ask you quite often and that you like to, to share. Would that be okay? I'll come back anytime. You bet. Thanks. Okay, Sandy. Thank you, Sandy Collier, for being a part of Horsemanship Radio. Next up, we have Charlotte Badal with this training tip. Charlotte, thank you. This is the Horse Sense with Charlotte Bradal Baker segment, and we would love to have your insights on what is what are some of the most common problems that you see when you're judging horses in dressage. Um, I think tension. Many times you see in the horses, and um, what I'm always looking for is harmony. I want to see a horse that looks really happy in his work, with confidence in his rider. And where there's a nice elastic connection from the horse's, I mean, from the rider's hand to the mouth. And a lot of times you'll see that that is too strong. And um, and because of that, the horse will go behind the vertical or open mouth or, you know, with mouth issues. And mm-hmm. uh, we see, I think, too much of that. And I think that's one of the things that riders really need to strive for is that nice, like rubber band elastic connection from the so you judge for the, you judge for the harmony. Mm-hmm. Is, is that being yeah. taught out there, Charlotte, or is that um, well, I something? Think it, I think it definitely is, and and uh, just not by all. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just like in any discipline, I, I just don't think it has much to do with the discipline. I think it's just each individual trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and this is something that is uh, reflected in the behavior of the horse as well. Well, yeah, because you see, you'll see tension, and you'll see different, uh, usually mouth issues that the horse is uh, opening his mouth or going behind the vertical line and trying to evade the bit, the bit mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. the hands being too strong or too, where there's just not enough enough give in mm-hmm. the brain. Yeah, and and you feel as a judge that you can um, reward these these harmonious um, oh, gestures. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, you certainly can. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do judges yes. talk about these qualities? Do judges oh, all the confer time. with each other? Yeah, all mm-hmm. the time. That's one of the things I love about judging is that the discussions we have are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we do all the time on every yeah. break and dinner and stuff. We discuss all these things, mm-hmm. and it's very very educational for all of us to get each other's, you know, feedback. Right. And you're living in both worlds right now. So, so, uh, in shape and able to compete, uh, but yet to be, uh, in the industry long enough to be granted a license to judge as well. That must be a small, uh, club that you're in. Well, the international judges club. Yes. Mm. The national, Congratulations. we have quite a few, but the, uh, I've only been judging internationally for the last, I think, uh, five years now. Mm-hmm. So that's been just a whole, a whole new world 
to get into that. And, of course, it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very interesting to judge around the world. I judged in Australia earlier this year and in France. And very, very, very interesting. And also in, in the different countries, the styles can be a little bit different, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations for that. For all that you've accomplished, I want to have you back, and you can tell us more about some of the travels that you've got coming up, which are pretty exotic. Thank you, Charlotte Berdahl-Baker, for Thank being with you. us today. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty's looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, in Solvang, California. January 25, he has a Night of Inspiration, which is an author and doing the join-up. And for those that just love the whole um, idea of join-up, it is fun. And then the next day, we do a Life Lessons, which is a workshop. And it's a personal development workshop that is brand new. We're really excited about it. And everybody gets a book, and they get to do a little bit of personal development work with uh, – those uh, chapters from The Man Who Listens to Horses about overcoming adversity and maximizing your potential. It's, it'll be really interesting. And then he goes on into England and Germany. And for anybody who wants to see the, we- the website and where he will be and those calendar dates and how to get information, it's at www.monteroberts.com. Or you can call the office at 805-688-6288. For details about today's show, go to horsemanshipradio.com where you can find links, photos, and more information about all of the guests that have been on the shows. It's also a place you can go to listen to all the past episodes. You can catch them all and catch up. A lot of people do that. Go back to episode one. You know, a lot of... Most of the information that you talk to the guests about, unlike some of our other shows, which are more timely, is the information that you talk to each one of these guests about is not time sensitive. You can go back and listen to it. It's going to be the same good, good information, you know, three months from now. So, that's right. uh, you know. That's right. Yep, so that's very important to keep in mind. And as always, we love your feedback. You can follow us on Facebook under facebook.com slash Monty Roberts and Twitter at twitter.com slash Monty underscore Roberts. Yeah, and many thanks to our sponsors. And be sure that you visit the other great shows on Horse Radio Network, too, at www.horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. Thank you.